Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brad. And this episode, we're discussing SST-54, the angst record, Light Life. Really excited to get into this one. You've heard me uh, mention it probably a few times in the previous episodes. And we have an incredibly cool treat, Brent. We've got Joseph Pope on the podcast as well, which is amazing. You never you never really get that much firsthand detail on angst. So this is incredible for me anyways. Yeah, it's awesome. Why don't you hit me with a spear? Well, do you know what happened one year ago tonight, Ryan? I do not. We released our first episode, Nervous Breakdown. Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, so here's the deal. I don't know if you and I actually discussed that we were going to go every week for a year, or if that was just in my own brain, like a goal that I made. You definitely set a mandate, for sure. Yeah, well, we did it. (laughs) And, (laughs) I mean... Even over Christmas? Even over Christmas. But, I mean, you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of nothing. It's just a podcast, but it's it's been a ton of work. There's, I'm sure, been a few times where I said to you like dude we need to take a couple weeks off i'm getting burnt out because it's a lot of work and i mean you and i both work full-time pretty demanding jobs with long hours we both have families and uh (laughs) most of my free time goes to this podcast but it's been very rewarding and a whole lot of fun so i want to say a few things about our first year if that's okay sure but before you say anything, I do want to say a big thanks to you because it was your idea and I love the excuse to hang out every week. Yeah, well, you're on my thank you list, man, because uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's I look forward to it every week. So even though I've said a few times we got to take a break, uh, it's never really stuck because I get over it pretty quick and then I look forward to it. So Yeah, well, you are kind of like the punk rock Oscar the Grouch for sure. <laughs> That's what they tell me. So listen, I got to say some thank yous here, Ryan. Do it. Mike Watt, first of all, um, was our first guest. We asked him, or I asked him to uh, do the spiels. Somebody asked recently on Twitter, who is the person that does the, says history lesson part one and part two and ballot result? It's Mike Watt. And I asked him and like an hour later, I had a folder in my Dropbox entitled Watt Spiel for Brandt <laughs> that, that had those in there. And I mean, Watt talks a lot about repaying the debt and stuff like that. It's a common theme with him. But I mean, he yeah. he doesn't owe us jack shit. And he had no idea who we were either, right? No. Well, we <laughs> I think it was our sep- second episode or third, maybe whatever episode it was, third or fourth. And he did like a two hour interview with me. He gave us some clout when we really needed it. And I wanted to say thanks to what? I want to say thanks to Joe Carducci. He's been an invaluable uh, resource. Always is very prompt and detailed with his responses. He's very patient with me. And you should go listen to his interview on episode 22, the St. Vitus episode. Uh, some other people that you should check out. Abe Gibson, who uh, has a book coming out at some point here on SST. He's helped us us out a lot with some contacts and you should check him out on episode 13 the blasting concept joe biza episode 46 and 48 he did an epic two-parter with us and was very gracious uh i think one of your favorites ryan 
Jim Walters and Alex Totino of Dos Dahman, episode 40, was a great interview. Awesome. The coolest guys. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Felice Lacoco, episode 38, for Overkill's Triumph of the Will, also provided a ton of info. Friend of the pod, Michael T. Fournier, episode 28, Double Nickels on the Dime. And he contributes great things like this, Ryan. A few episodes back for the Minute Flag release, we were talking about releases, co-releases between bands, where they kind of mashed up their bands. He sent one in. Uh, The Fucking Champs featuring Tim Green of Nation of Ulysses and Trans Am did two split records, like Minute Flag. The first was Trans Champs, and the second was The Fucking Am. Oh, that's cool. So there you go. Uh, And he introduced us also to another friend of the pod, Jeff Shrek, who did the Meat Puppets in a Car blog post for us. And I believe when Michael made the introduction, he introduced Jeff as the number one angst fan in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And Jeff is doing a uh, blog post this week with his favorite angst releases. So head over to Mojack Pod right now, check that out, and thanks to Jeff for doing that. Cool. He also uh, sent in some of the questions that I used in the interview. Linda Kite, uh, who's a really nice person, she's on episode 32, My First Bells. Definitely give that a listen if you're a Minutemen fan. Loud Lou did an awesome interview f- uh, for Worm, episode 41. Paul Hillkoff, who runs the Husker Du database, you should head over there for sure. If you're a Husker Du fan, it's insane how much stuff he's collected. And he did episode 27 for Zen Arcade. Tom Tricoli, we got great reaction to Tom Tricoli's interview. Probably one of the best we've gotten for any interview. And that was episode 47 for Tom Tricoli's dog. He also answered a ton of my questions for October Faction. Robert Vodica, I haven't gotten around to transcribing this interview I did with him yet, but it's amazing. He shared his dissertation on Black Flag, which I got a ton of info from. So I hope to get that up soon. Uh, Stevie Chick did a great interview for the blog. Bill Lindsay, a couple weeks ago, from Impaler for the blog. Norman Sim from The Unwanted in Winnipeg, a favorite episode of mine. Episode 25, Eight Miles High, because we did a deep dive on Winnipeg. That's right. Yeah, and uh, of course tonight, Joseph Pope uh, did a really great interview. And we've got lots of great interviews coming up. Most of all, Ryan, I want to thank all of our amazing listeners. They leave us reviews. Uh, they've given us some really great feedback. They share pictures. They uh, share recommendations of other bands they think we might like. And uh, we've got a lot of loyal listeners who tune in every single week. So thanks to everybody for listening, sharing. It's truly what makes it worth doing. Do you have a favorite episode we've done in the last year, Ryan? You know, there's been a bunch. You mentioned Dostom, and that is the one that comes to my mind just because, I don't know, it's the one that really caught me off guard about how the revisiting of a band was so worthwhile. But I will also say the uh, Saccharine Trust, Surviving You Always, was another one that really stuck out for me as well. Just because a lot of the records that we go through, we know them quite well. Yeah. Those, those two were very welcome reminders to me about how much more amazing stuff we have to discover and how much more deeper we can go with these bands that, you know, it's not that you've forgotten about them, but it's been a while since you revisited them and it's really worth revisiting them. So those two I would point out. Okay. What about yourself? Uh, like I mentioned, I really like the 8 Miles High one. 
uh, just because we talked about Winnipeg and we we really riffed on that, which was fun for me. <laughs> you know, Canadian punk, but yeah, that's the first time that anyone has said I really liked taking a deep dive on Winnipeg. <laughs> first and last, <laughs> for sure. Hey, speaking of really nice people that have helped us out, Ryan. Joseph Pope is our guest tonight, and it was a really great interview. And I have to give a plug to this awesome compilation that he sent me. So he sent me this comp called Rocky Mountain Low, uh, the Colorado musical underground of the late 1970s. He compiled this and, along with uh, this dude, Dalton Lawrence uh, Rasmussen. And he told me it took him about 10 years to compile it, and I believe it. Uh, just the liner notes... Uh, just sourcing all the photos that they used in here and the tracks, like there's 31 tracks on here. And then, so there's a 31 track CD and then a seven inch single. It's the size of a seven inch. It's 40 some pages long. Joseph does an amazing write up in it. There's a few. He kind of talks about the scene at large. And the thing about this Colorado scene it's mostly center, centered around uh, the Denver and Boulder areas, but it reminds me a lot of some of the comps you hear about smaller scenes in the sense that it is very diverse. And the, I mean, just because there were so few bands, any weirdo band <laughs> kind of played together in this kind of weirdo scene. It really reminds me of like the Cleveland scene a little bit. And I just love that because there's so many bands and uh, there's a write-up on each band, including uh, what they did next, which I really liked. The 7-inch has a track by The Healers, which is, do you know uh, whose band that was? I don't. Uh, well, I'll give you a, a clue. He's probably the most famous punk rocker from Boulder. Hmm. Is it Jello Biafra? Yep. And, no way. Yeah, and it's uh, <laughs> the earliest known version of California Uberalis. And uh, so it's a really great package. Some of my favorites on it are uh, a band called Johnny Three. Uh, there's a really cool band called the Immortal Night Flames. Dirty Dog was a cool band. Dancing Assholes. Uh, Defects. The Healers. That's Jello's band. And of course, there's two tracks by The Instance. And that is uh, Joseph Pope and his brother. So, And they're really good too. So everybody should check this out. You can get it on RockyMountainLow.com. I highly recommend it. Cool. And he was nice enough to send send us a copy. Awesome. Those are my spiels, Ryan. Those are hard spiels to follow. I got some spiels, but I kind of want to get to angst. Maybe I'll save my spiels for next week. Should we jump right into the interview, Ryan? Sure, we could do that. Okay. History lesson, part one. Okay, uh, we're talking to Joseph Pope today. Thanks for joining us today, Joseph. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start from the beginning, and could you maybe take us back and tell us a little bit how the band got started? <laughs> Man, that's a long story. Um, as short as possible, I mean, the band is myself and my brother and one other guy, and my brother and I grew up together, the closest two brothers of a large family. And we always loved music, and we always tinkered with music. So sometime in the early 70s, he started playing guitar. And then being a lover of punk rock in the 70s, um, I was trying to get a band together in 77 and blah, blah, blah. And finally, around mid-78, 
I got some people together. John decided to get on board. So that was our first band. That was called the Instant, like right. Instant Coffee, and that was in Colorado. And um, shameless plug here, if you want to hear us, you can go to uh, hear a compilation called Rocky Mountain Low, which has the 70s Colorado scene on there. Right. Now, the but, instance uh, where did you go into a studio? Is it, are these studio recordings? No, no. This is, well, a studio. It was a four track. A friend of ours had a four track. Right. This guy named Paul Saulbach, who was in this band called the Dancing Assholes, who were, in my estimation, one of the highlights of the compilation. But, That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they got it from Pink Flamingos, the the famous scene at the end with the sphincter, you know. Okay. That's yeah, that's where they got the the name from. So now, when you anyway, when you say punk rock, what are we talking? Like, were you into the the Pistols, like the British stuff? I'm assuming. Oh, everything. Yeah. I mean, I got into punk when the first Ramones album came out, it, and it took me at first. It was sort of like, a, which was a common reaction to the Ramones. It was like, what the hell is this? And like laughing, but not like laughing at the cartoonish part of it and the lyrics and such, you yeah. know, but then it only took me about a month or something to get it where it just registered, right? Just went, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things. I mean, I was 15, maybe just turned 16 years old and deeply into music and the youngest of a big family and listened to music all through the sixties and all that stuff. Right. And, I don't know. You kind of had to be there to get the Ramones is my own feeling. You know, there was nothing like it that had really existed. It was so like, what the hell is this? Yep. <laughs> and so reduced, you know, such a minimalist statement. But anyway, so the Ramones and then I started, I had, I already had records like the dictators go girl crazy, which was a favorite yep. and Patty Smith record but I had never made any connection of like a New York scene or anything. And, and it was around then I started paying summer of 76. Let's say I started paying more attention to what was going on there. And fortunate was very curious and liked all kinds of music, but also was fortunate enough to live near wax tracks in Denver. Right. Although we lived in Boulder and they were Anglophiles and they were into glam and blah 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 and they were heavily into the ramones and they carried all the british publications and such so i started reading those whenever whenever i'd go to wax tracks so the sex pistols got on my radar by the end of that year because they got a lot of press and stuff okay. and then anarchy in the uk came out at the end of 76 i if i remember correctly so yes i was like heavily in to this new music coming out and then in early 77 you know kaboom is what happened right and then 77 really was the year that everything went crazy yes and i'd always wanted to play music like i said john picked up guitar finally around like 72 73 and i mean you can hear it in his playing and stuff but he he loved dylan and woody guthrie as i did as well but i was more a bit more of a rock guy than him i would say okay but I tinkered with, with playing music most of my life and took piano lessons. And I always wanted to be a guitarist, actually, was my deal. And I, you know, the first band, of course, was the Beatles. Right. Beatlemania and all that stuff. And plus, then, plus older I, siblings, I bet, had a, had a big influence on your listening habits. Oh, huge. Yeah. Huge. Because we moved, we were born out here just south of San Francisco, but um, 
my when we moved was like 63 64 right around there and my sister was a california girl 10 years older so whatever 13 14 year old girl she the, so some of the earliest music i ever heard was dick dale okay um and the safaris and the beach boys who i hated then actually <laughs> <laughs> but she was a big beetle freak and so all those records were around and then my eldest brother who was another 10 years older than her or something, he stayed in California, but his records came with us when we moved. Okay. And they, they were, they were stacks of 45s and it was things like little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and the coasters and the platters and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I was literally like a four or five year old kid sitting around. I would just spend hours obsessed with these records, you know? listening um and then of course my mom had things like mancini and the west side story soundtrack and all that right um so truly i was just it was curiosity you know and it always somehow was just interested in music it was actually my mom that got us into hendrix i can remember like like yesterday she walks in and she's like you boys gotta hear this and she had jimmy are you experienced and my mom was you know she was a middle class woman i mean my elder brothers were, eldest brother particularly was hippie and whatever, the whole counterculture, quote unquote. Maybe she heard from them. I don't know. But, you know, Jimi Hendrix was popular back then. So For she sure. had the first album and she puts on Foxy Lady. <laughs> and then she just left us with the record. And we're like, okay, great. So I idolized Hendrix. I mean, among many other bands, and we don't want to spend all the time talking about that. Right. I always wanted to be a guitar player. And so I begged my mom for guitar lessons, begged her, begged her, begged her. So it was Christmas of 69 or 70. She finally gets me lessons, and they were acoustic. So I refused to take the lessons. <laughs> because, and I was like, so I don't regret anything in my life, truly, but that was the biggest mistake I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably got so, relegated to bass by default with, uh, with a brother that well, played guitar, I'm assuming. No, actually. So anyways, John started, picked up the guitar and a couple years later, and one of the first songs we ever sang together was uh, King of the Road, Roger Miller's King of the Road. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. Right. No. So, so like I said, I finally, you know, and I always wanted to play and play guitar and be in a band and all that stuff. And again, like however many other people, the Ramones, it really was like, I can do that, right. you know? So it finally was like, okay, impetus to go, and I'm going to start the damn band. I had a friend who was a guitar player who also idolized Hendrix. We were going to have a band together, and I was going out to buy a guitar. And that, literally, I'm walking out, and he's like, hey, man, why don't, you, why don't you play bass, and I'll play guitar? And that's literally the only reason I'm a bass player. Because <laughs> I went, okay, I'll play bass instead. Um, and then we never had a band. So I had a bass, though. Um, and then, you know, practice, practice, practice. And I was trying to start a band in 77. But it was tough to find anybody in anywhere but Boulder, especially, especially my age. Right. High school kids who were into the same stuff. So it never happened. And then, like I said, and then without the whole boring story, but around mid-78, finally something coalesced and when i say punk rock i mean punk rock like grinding you know punk rock right you know real basic crude 
three chord. <laughs> crime and some of those San Francisco bands, were they on your radar? Um, the name Crime was. I didn't have the record. Right. But the San Francisco bands, absolutely, because I always had an eye to come here because we were from here, so it always felt like my home and right. we had relatives out here and stuff. So the plan was always to come to San Francisco. And then the drummer in the instance was born and raised in San Francisco. And so we were like, okay, we'll just go back to San Francisco. So anyways, in 77, and as 77 wore on, it was hard to find regional stuff. Yeah. But I was very keyed in and would write to bands and labels and such. And uh, mail order, uh, Bomp being the primary place I would get these. But I had an awareness of West Coast because of my interest and because of being into punk rock. So, yes, to answer your question, yes, I was very aware of what was going on. And then when the record started coming out, The Avengers and Negative Trend and uh, Dead Beats and all the Danger House stuff and whatever. You're all over that uh, stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bought it all when it came out. Yeah. I was really into it and would mail order the, you know, when Flash came out and Search and Destroy and stuff like that. So. Right. But and I don't think I had the crime records till a lot later, actually. Okay. They're just the it's first band that popped into my head when you mentioned kind of the early San Francisco scene. Right. Well, um, they yeah, they were the earliest, as you know. So did you guys kind of just morph in, into a, into angst, or did the instance kind of split up, and then how, how did that process uh, happen? We fell apart. We The guitarist was English, one of the guitarists, because John, John, my brother, was the guitarist in the instance and there was another guitarist who was british okay and he's actually the reason that i finally when i met him he was a college student and we had similar outlook and we said oh get a band together that's sort of how it coalesced and then like i said john sort of got on board almost out of convenience you know mm -hmm. so the english guitarist just announced i'm moving back to england um because the original plan was to come to san francisco right but, you know, when you're 18 years old, you'll throw a dart at a map and you go, oh, sure, England, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so we all piled in and we went to England, which was in the north of England, this little university town called Lancaster, which okay. is where he had gone to school, Andrew, the English guitarist. And so our plan was to get good, quote unquote, and then move to London at that point. But we never got good. Um, <laughs> Is was Lancaster far from the action, or? Oh yeah, it yeah. was way up north. Look at a map; it's about two miles from the Irish Sea. Okay. It's it's somewhere like west of Manchester, maybe like a ways, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's away from the action for sure. I mean, weird. They would have weird gigs there. Like I saw Spiz Energy. Remember Spiz Energy? No, I don't remember them. Yeah, uh, British. I, they're pretty catchy little singles, you know, just mm -hmm. a weird British late 60s rough trade band. Okay. I mean, late 70s, sorry. You know, and the two-tone tour came through. It was a university town. Right. So, And I actually think the Sex Pistols played there in 76, or maybe it was one of the shows that got canceled or something. But no, we were far from the action, and we only played two gigs. You know, we got all the gear together, and we did all the thing. We played two pretty ill-fated gigs, and then I don't know exactly how it happened, but we fell apart and moved on and then moved back to Colorado and finally, <laughs> okay, we're going to get to San Francisco. <laughs> so then I 
worked and then save some money and move to San Francisco. John and I did at that point. And that's where we started on. Was there a conscious decision to to change the sound at this point? Or was it kind of like, how how does Angst compare to the instance sonically, <laughs> musically? Um, well, I, there was no conscious decision. I don't know if we ever made a conscious decision ever. <laughs> 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 I mean, seriously, we never, ever went, oh, you know, that guitar sound on the so-and-so and the... <laughs> we just i don't know how to explain it um well if you're just writing we were, songs it's just kind of what's coming out of you so right and we were brothers and we literally grew up since before we could walk you know so it was like this unspoken thing so the big i guess the big sonic difference was there was one guitar right and, and i don't even know if that was a, a conscious decision or not i mean it sort of just like felt like it was like me and John and we'll get a, a drummer because that'll just be easier or something. I, I don't really know. Right. Um, and, and, and as far as the songwriting goes, like a lot of it, I, I think most of it is credited to you and your brother. Like, would you write as a duo, like outside of the practice space or how, how did you write the songs? Um, not really. They more, more or less one would have a song. Right. And then just bring it in and then we would work it out in practice. Like, but, you know, were one of you more writing lyrics or music or kind of just both doing both? Both doing both to whoever had the song. Right. Like, we would basically come in with completed song, you know, lyrics and chords or whatever, um, and then go, okay, let's do it. So I don't, you know, arrangement is too highfalutin a word for <laughs> what we did, but, you know, the, the, the feeling of it or whatever, as a band, we would you know, beat the thing to death and figure it out, you know, that's what that was about. You know, it took us a while to find a drummer and, and then I cut my hand, I, I sliced my tendon. And so that delayed us like six or seven months. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So on my fretting hand, what if it was just the hand I held my pick with, that would have been one thing, but it was the other hand. So right. we didn't actually play our first gig until like eight, early 81, maybe, mid-81, sometime around there. And, like, who who were you, like, what kind of scene was happening around then? Who who would you have been playing with early on? Early on? Oh, boy. Play, around here? Yeah. Um, we would play a lot at this place called The Sound of Music. Okay. Which was in the Tenderloin, this area called the Tenderloin, and it was a club. It had been around for a year or two. Like, if you look on the... Oh, wait. I don't know. That's Def Club, I think. Sorry. I don't know. It, it had been around since 79 gigs and stuff had happened there. And I think bands like Flipper and stuff had played there. Okay. What What was happening? What kind of bands? Just sort of whoever they would put us on the <laughs> bill with, really. Right. So we would play everything from these, you know, gothy whatever bands. So there would be bills with, you know, Wasted Youth, L.A.'s Wasted Youth, and Social Distortion, and Us, and Seven Seconds, and... Uh, there was a bill where the Dicks headlined and we played in the middle and the Stains pre-MDC opened the show. Right. Um, I mean, we would play any shows, but in a sense, we were ghettoized into the hardcore scene, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Although I, I liked hardcore, I liked a lot of hardcore stuff. So those, to me, that was the more like uh, exciting, sort of more active scene, you know? 
Yeah, but Although, a few, a few of those bands you're mentioning, like Flipper, for example, or, were, you know, pretty far out, <laughs> pretty far out there for, for maybe hardcore audiences, probably a better fit for you guys. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you ask. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were pretty far out. They were, they were, they were special, you know, yep. and they definitely had their own thing, but, you know, they also had a, a, a history in San Francisco with, guy playing a negative trend and stuff so they they had deep roots in the san francisco punk scene you know right and i i have i wasn't here then i mean i was aware of those bands like like i said but i have to assume that had something to do with their situation or acceptance or whatever but and then um, at, at some point i'm assuming you played with 100 flowers is that how uh, mm-hmm. happy squid came you came on their yeah. radar at the sound of music we played at the at the same place um because it was i mean in those days for us we we practiced every night literally every night and if we played a gig i would give us the next day off and it really was me giving them the next day off. (laughs) (laughs) but we would play the sound of music constantly you know it would be and from our point of view we were like great we get to practice with a pa you know because our pa at that point was a four by 12 cabinet with two of the speakers blowing you know so we're like okay wow a real pa and we played so many gigs for literally nobody like the bartender um but we were working it out you know playing live is different even if there's no one there for sure yeah so oh yeah so they had they would have these sunday matinee shows at the sound of music um and yes, we played with Hundred Flowers and Middle Class because they came up. They'd done some shows. I think they played on Broadway. Was going by then, but anyways, yes. So we played with them, and then John Tally Jones, the bass player, urinal Hundred Flowers, yep. and I had a Happy Squid. He's like, "Oh, you guys are great. You guys are great. I want to put your record out." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, right. Sure, man. Yeah." And so he gives me the phone number. So, well, however long, month or two later, I call him up. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So that's pretty much how that happened. Right. And it it seems to me that maybe Joe Carducci was your kind of your in at SST. Did you know him prior to him working for SST? I did. Um, when I graduated, I, I, I was a record, I worked in record stores once I got out of high school in 78. And so I was an import buyer at a pl- place called Peaches, which was a big chain, kind kind of like a tower, but towers are pretty unique actually. And I was I was the import buyer. And in those days, unless you had specialty shops, and even then, a lot of the punk stuff, independent punk stuff, whatever was coming out, would get dumped in the import section. American and otherwise, and I, I, my own opinion is, is that's mostly because it was the importers who were bring, carrying the stuff on any kind of national level, as well as the fact that most of the records came out of England, you know, in 77, when it really broke open, those records were pouring out of England. Mm-hmm. So I had worked in a record store, Peaches, as the import buyer. When I moved to... California, I coincidentally arrived in Berkeley at the exact same time that Systematic opened, like literally within a month. Okay. Which was the underground distribution company that Carducci worked at. 
I became the import buyer at Tower Records, who who had already there was a, someone previous to me that would go to Systematic. So through that connection, I started going to Systematic and buying, and they were fantastic because they carried all truly all the underground. They were by far the best, and at that point, I would argue only um, distributor dedicated to American underground stuff as well as other things, but. So I started going there regularly and buying like at least once a week and buying stuff for Tower. Right. That went on. So we befriend. That's when I met Carducci face to face. We befriended each other through that, and then in I think it might have been first like January of '81, uh, Carducci offered me a job there. Okay. So I I became their first and only employee, and then. We worked together for, I don't know, until he went to SST, like a bit under a year, maybe eight, seven, eight months or something. So then we actually worked together. Okay. Um, but prior to that, our connection, actually, we laughed about this later. We actually go back to 78 because there's a, in the old days, there weren't many places to get regional records, and I had already been buying them, as I told you. And then a little bit later, sometime in 78, um, this place called Renaissance, where Joe worked, which was a record store in Portland, started publishing a mail-order catalog. And as there were so few places to get records, they were on my radar, so I started writing to them. Right. Um, I remember getting mostly reggae records from them myself, so... So anyway, somewhere in a box, I have rec- <laughs> I have catalogs from '78 with Carducci's handwriting. Oh like, wow! Hey, haven't heard. Yeah, <laughs> going. Hey, haven't heard from you. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so, uh, I mean, it seems like a lot of the earlier bands, you know, up until this point, the the story is usually they played a show with Black Flag, and then right. and and somebody at the label, usually Greg or Chuck, saw them, and. Uh, they ended up on the label. Were you playing with any of those bands, like the Meat Puppets or anything like that? Or was it just your, kind of your, more your friendship with Joe or your... Well, kind of both, I guess, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, speaking for myself, I always wanted to be on SST, you know, from the get-go. And much of that was, I like their, I like the label. You know, I was a fan of the label, and I liked the aesthetic, and I liked the bands they were putting out, and they just seemed to, they sort of did their own thing, which to me, you know, as corny as it sounds, it was really like the the spirit of what punk and music should be about, you know, people sort of following their own path. Right. So I was a fan of the label, and we distributed them when Joe and I worked together. I mean, that's how Joe made the connection with them. Part of it was aesthetic, but yes, of course, because I knew Joe and I trusted him, it's like, yeah, this is a good place to go. We can get there. So basically from the beginning, I wanted to be on the label. Whether they had even knew who we were other than Joe or had any interest, you would have to ask them. <laughs> I really doubt it. <laughs> but we started playing gigs oh, pretty early, like like 82, mid-82, early 82. We would play Black Flag you know, Minutemen, Descendants, Meat Puppets, Akron, whatever the usual bands, you know. Well, I mean, they were obviously in, into what you guys were doing because I, I'm assuming it wasn't long after uh, 
your debut came out on SST that Joe was probably gone from the label. Yes. Yeah. I think that was already sort of transitioning right when our record came out. Okay. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, so anyway, yes, I always wanted to be on the label. I liked the bands. They were good people. There was some relationship through the distribution, I guess. You know, I saw them as sort of kindred spirits, for lack of a better term. But for whatever reason, and they would know this, Carducci's the one to ask, you know, whether they didn't think we were ready or maybe probably had a lot to do with finances. I would imagine, as you know, there were some difficult years in there. Yep. So they finally got to a point where they could sign bands. At least this is how I see it, you know. Yep. Um, and there, that may not be the truth. That may not be the story you get told by Joe or whatever. But at that point, it was like, okay, we can we can do a record for you guys. And um, Joe and Joe pro- uh, produced it. Yes. And what was that process like recording uh, with Mike? Is it Lardy? At total access? Well, <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't really remember him much. Yeah. You know, he, he, was, he was a rock guy, and he was good in the sense that he seemed unobtrusive. You know, he wasn't sitting there trying to impose anything on us or anything. Um, but Joe was very involved in it, you know. He took it seriously, he tends to take things seriously. Um and when we when I kept bugging him about it, he's like, you know, he he had seen us obviously, and I, he knew we practiced all the time. And I had sent him tapes because we had done demos and been on compilations and done this Happy Squid record. Right. But he still was. He, he's like, you need to go into the studio and record all the songs that you want to do for this record. So he put us through the paces, as it were. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like good, you know. I mean, we were up for it because, like I said, we worked hard, and so. But he's like, you've got to do that. We're not going to sign you unless you tour. You're not going to be on this label unless you're willing to tour. I'm like, okay, great. So he made us go in and record everything, give him that tape. Then when we went to Total Access, I think they had some deal worked out with them at that point where they could get X amount of time for X amount of dollars. You know, They, they were certainly using them a lot around that time. Right. I mean, and again, that's a question for those guys. Yeah. So what was it like? Yeah, I mean, we it was essentially, it, we took about 40 hours for the whole thing. And I mean, I mean, 40 hours from when we pulled up in front of the studio <laughs> with our van filled with equipment. Right. To on a, on a late Friday to when we're leaving Sunday evening sometime and they go, here's your here's your album. And they hand <laughs> us a cassette. <laughs> I mean, that's how long the thing took. So. Yeah. Um, typical fashion, you know. Yep. So it was basically live in the studio, barring vocals. I don't, I don't even think there were any. Oh, there were some overdubs. I mean, little things. And you know, Joe again was someone we trusted. You know, so there was no any kind of conflict or anything. And he was very involved, and he had a lot of ideas. He and he he kept things moving. You know, right. as producers should. You know, and he he was the one sitting there going, "Okay, good take, bad take." whatever okay play the next one and we're just in there banging it out you know but he had lots of ideas you know he had little uh, like there's one song and there's some slow song where you can hear people walking around and stuff 
in the beginning and that was a car and at the end that's a carducci thing so we went out in the street with a microphone and recorded street sounds and, oh cool um yeah and on light life i'm 99 sure it was carducci there's a gong you hear a gong at one point and that was carducci's idea but what we did was recorded a symbol we didn't have a gong <laughs> so we had a symbol recorded it at real fast speed and then just slowed it down oh okay and then we had a gong <laughs> um you know joe was funny because he had all kinds of ideas like he wanted us to break the yodel barrier as i remember <laughs> and i was like oh man you know he's like, you got to break the yodel barrier <laughs> <laughs> and i you know, I liked Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams, loved him, in fact. And I was like, no, man. And it's it's not because I was opposed to yodeling. It's just I didn't think I could do it proper, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So Joe, yeah, had his, he was very hands-on, you know, uh, sort of overseeing and guiding the whole thing in a sense, you know. And how about uh, the cover art? Uh, Michael Miro did the art? Was he a Miro. friend of the band's or... How did that happen? He he was someone I knew. Do you, there there was a magazine called Brave Ear okay. magazine. They I think they originally started in Hayward, which is like 20 miles from here, just south of Oakland. But they were a local music mag, and he was a printer. He had a printing shop in his house where he could do you know nice offset printing and color printing stuff. He didn't print that cover, right? But um. That's how that connection came about, and they had seen us early on and liked us. Okay. Um, and there's a whole other relation. That's a whole another podcast. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, we went in, and I found that picture in a in a, I forget where, and then it was such a surreal picture. Anyways, you know, it's a bunch of people partaking in an activity in a place where they shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't be people partaking in that activity you know yep and and then we wanted to make it a little wilder you know and so he turned me on to the posterization process and then we screwed around with that for a while and that's how we got the sort of psychedelic look i guess whatever you want to call it okay um and then he did all the negatives for us and all that so yeah he was a friend you mentioned that you had sourced this this photo. What what actually are they doing? <laughs> I can't there, tell. There's a swimming pool in the middle of the desert. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's sort of like Las Vegas. Las Vegas shouldn't. I mean, what the hell? You know, there's no water. There's, you know what I mean? Like, let's let's build a city that sucks up all this power and electricity and what they're doing. Yeah, it's a swimming pool. Okay. I'm, I don't want to get off. Um, it's a very barren, dry, arid place, and these people have built a swimming pool. Gotcha. Yeah, I thought I thought maybe there was something more nefarious going on that I was missing. No, no. I mean that's pretty nefarious when you think about <laughs> it. But... Yeah. So, like I said, Carducci was very hands-on um, and involved in it, and of course he was in the control room, and we were in the studio playing. And the one one thing that to this day bothers me. <laughs> So if you're listening, Joe. Oh, he's listening. When, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. When we did the song Light Life, I was actually playing, you can kind of hear it, I was playing full-on chords on the bass. I, I can hear that how, on a few songs. Yeah, but yeah. I was playing, in that song in particular, it was full-on distortion, howling feedback. It was like this 
huge part of the song. Okay. But to, when we when you listen to it, you hear that like wee wee wee. You can't yeah. really tell what the hell's right. Yeah. That's my bass. Oh, okay. I was wondering what that was. So that was. was like the one thing. I mean, it was great, and you know, we obviously got along well and all that. But I remember we did our recording. We come in to listen, and I was like, I said, "What the fuck? It sounds like a kettle." That's not, we can't, no, and, and it was like, nope, it'll be fine, just move on. We don't have time to go back and do it. Right. And it bugged me then, and it bugs me now. <laughs> well, I was, so I was wondering what that was. <laughs> yeah, it's my bass, and there should be a lot more uh, dissonance in there along with it, you know. Well, um, there, there's... And it's really funny, because like I told you, I'm a bit of a control freak, and, and but Carducci's probably the one person that I would go, okay, cool, would move on you know right as opposed to like pushing the issue you know so the back cover um well first off the the lyrics are on there for economics uh that way we didn't have to have an insert okay uh and then the picture was taken by john's significant other his wife that i think she he may have been they may have been married at that point she also took the front cover picture of mystery spot and if you look behind us, what what is behind us is a train. Yep. Which, you know, John and I, of course, like trains and what they mean and the American myth, as it were, and the American West and all that stuff. But but where that picture, that it was more out of convenience because where that picture was taken was right outside our practice space. Oh, which, okay. Yeah, which was in the middle of San Francisco. Now is the middle of San Francisco. It's basically 16th and Florida Street. It's sort of on the northeastern edge of the Mission District. But at that time, it was basically a wasteland, a barren wasteland of warehouses and stuff. So where our rehearsal space was, was in an old Ham's brewery. So it was an old beer brewery, this big, giant building. Okay. Our actual space that we played in was a was a beer vat and it was like (laughs) it was like eight feet wide by eight feet tall and about 20 feet long and it was covered in i think kaolinite sort of like a hard plastic like clay like what they make unbreakable combs out of okay actually anyway so that was our space and i i mean there's not enough time to get into the story of the vats. It be, it was known and is known as the vats. Is this is this the same space that like DRI practiced in at some point? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Same place. Right. Yep. So so what little is known about this place is within the context of the hardcore. Right. So yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's a story that should be told and should be told accurately. You know, because there's more. It's an interesting story and all kinds of crazy underground shit went on there it's something that literally unless until the world economic collapse and we have a dystopian future it's never going to happen again in san francisco right you know i mean no way right i mean i think about that like i said there was a lot of activity there was a dominatrix who had a space up on the top floor and all this you know there was a lot of interesting stuff both good and bad um but like i said we don't have the time to tell the story but there's two falsehoods that have been perpetuated that I would like to correct. Okay. Uh, one, it was not a squat. And that's something that's been said over and over and for a long time. It, was, it wasn't it was a squat. A guy was essentially trying to take over the building. 
but it was not a squat. Now, that didn't mean that people didn't stay there without paying anything. Right. <laughs> Especially in the later, crazier, fuzzier days. But it was not a squat at all, and in the how people think of squats, especially in the time in Europe and such. Right, yeah. The second thing is, we were the first band there. Angst was the very first band to ever play at the Vats, oh. probably like a year before the hardcore bands even started showing up. Okay. Um, when we got there, I think there were two, maybe three other people in this entire giant building. Anyway, so I just wanted to get that out there, I guess, because I've heard and read these things, and it's always kind of bugged me. Okay. Did Chuck start booking tours for you after this came out, or how were you booked? Like, were you touring a lot? Um, we toured behind this record. Uh, I mean, we played constantly, and we would go to L.A. all the time, and we had gone to... Uh, I think we went to Seattle and Portland once, maybe. Mm-hmm. We never went to the Northwest for some darn reason. Um, then we drove to Salt Lake City for one gig one time. And But anyways, yes, we would play constantly, locally. Like I said, at the Sound of Music and the Mabuhay and wherever, whoever would have us. And I was also trying to get, quote-unquote, better gigs in actual clubs. You know, we would get calls from the Mabuhay all the time, not from Dirk, from Bobby, this guy that was helping him. And he, it would be 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, hey, the band canceled. You guys want to play tonight? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Get to practice with the PA. Sure, we'll come and play. We would do a lot of that, yes. Uh, but we, but as far as touring, I don't really consider going to L.A. touring. You right. know what I mean? I, I mean, it's, I hear other people refer, like, oh, we did a mini tour. You know, they went. 30 miles or something was right. really a tour but so the first it was chuck i think it was yeah it was definitely chuck that booked the first tour for us and then later on i know there's there's footage of you guys in germany on youtube did you did you go overseas much later on a uh, couple times yeah that that was both after i want to say that was after the last album I think we did two tours in about a year and a half, maybe. Yeah, both tours were with Andy, the second drummer. Right. The European tours. So this would have been maybe closer to the end of the band. Yes, like 87, 88. Yeah, yeah absolutely, because we broke up after we came back from the second tour. Right. But at that point, you know, things were starting to opening up. It still wasn't as crazy as it got, but a lot of underground independent whatever you want to call them american bands were going to europe at that stage and i don't know how it must have been global that that hooked us up with paperclip this place called paperclip in holland who were booking a lot of lot of ssd bands and a lot of the other bands your uh the band sound especially on the on the four lps is you know somewhat mellower maybe than some of the other bands on the sst roster did you ever feel out of out of place on sst (laughs) we felt out of place always (laughs) (laughs) i mean on a personal level no you know at not at all like they accepted you you mean oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah, sure because everybody was just doing like i was saying about earlier it was sort of like everybody's just doing their thing you know what i mean and so in that, again, from my point of view, maybe somebody tell you something different. It was like, oh, camaraderie, you know, it's like, oh, OK, 
cool band, the Minutemen, right on. Yep. We like them. They like us. Let's play, you know. Um, but I always used to joke that we were the oddballs on the oddball label, you know. For sure. Look at a picture of us compared to some of the other bands. Like, oh, they don't exactly fit on there. So. <laughs> but I didn't really, we didn't think about it like that, you know. Yeah. Like, like I said, everybody was just doing their just thing. Just doing what you were doing and concerned. take it or leave it kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can't speak for the other bands, but that's exactly what it was. And that was, that's how I perceived their trip. Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, uncompromising and like, here we are, you can have it or not, you know? Um, and I will say, you know, that as a label, they, that they, they never told us to do anything. You know, they might have a suggestion of like, Oh, this might be the good song or something, you know, to do a single or, and we said, no, they go, okay. I mean, they literally, every, we said, nope, we're, here's our cover. Here's the songs. Here's, you know, I mean, there had to be things arranged, like recording and such. Right. But there was never any interference uh, aesthetically. Yeah. And, I mean, what more can you ask for? Yeah. You know? I mean, that's that's really as good as it gets. Yeah, it's, e- even so. with independent labels of the era, you don't hear about that kind of creative control really being given to a band. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and like my brother put it once, he's like, they sort of looked at them as patrons, you know, sort of almost like that. Like, wow, okay, they're just going to, you know, support you to some degree to do what you want to do. I mean, right. What about after the breakup of the band? Did you continue playing music? You and your brother? No, John moved to Europe. Um, and me, myself and Andy, the drummer, started another band and went for a couple years locally. Uh, and then, what happened? Yeah, I kept playing for a while, but I never got anything together as seriously. I mean, I never stopped playing. I still play to this day regularly. You know, old habits die hard. Um, there's there's other mitigating factors. I mean, basically, I I basically lost everything that meant anything to me in about a one year period, including the band. Yeah. And it just I just sort of went and you know I fell in a hole kind of for a while. Um, so I withdrew a lot as far as being really engaged in in the music, you know. And then then it all exploded in the '90s, which. With the whole that was very interesting to watch. Did you? I know that there were some bands that got big around that time that dropped the band, your band's name. Was that gratifying at all? Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course. Did it yes. Get some, some, uh, <laughs> some credit after the fact, which always seems well, to be the case for kind of innovative bands. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate that. Um. Yes, it was, um, I mean, I'm assuming that the more famous example you're talking about is the Pixies. Yeah. Who, um, yeah, it's very flattering. It sort of felt like a validation of like, oh, all our hard work paid off. You right. know, um, somebody was listening. <laughs> At least one guy <laughs> was listening. <you> know? <laughs> so, yeah, of course, it felt very nice and flattering and you know, I like music history and stuff, so we're a little footnote of a footnote of a footnote, but it's like, okay, it's part of the age-old story, you know? People influence people who influence people, you know? Did you play um, with Frank Black at all? I recorded 
on a record called The Gullum. Okay. Um, which was a soundtrack to the silent uh, Paul Wegener silent movie, which came about because he was asked to, Charles Frank Black was asked to, the San Francisco International Film Festival every year has a silent movie, and they have a, quote, hipster, unquote, band accompany the sound, the, the film live. Oh, okay. And he was he was asked to do it one year, and so he um, put together people. It was in San Francisco, of course, and so he's like, hey, you want to play bass? Yeah, okay. Definitely. Okay. So that's kind of how that came about. Um, we had befriended each other. I guess when I, I heard about the Yonkst, him liking Yonkst, and I don't know when it was, but when I first heard it, I just thought, ah, there's some mistake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't seem right, you know? Yeah. But anyways, it was. And um, so then we befriended each other, um, and we're still friends. So it was gratifying because he's a really good guy, you know? Yeah. He's a good guy, and I, I respect him his aesthetic and his work ethic and you know so i have a lot of respect for him as a person and as a musician you know whereas if it wasn't that i would be like oh, oh great thanks <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean if somebody who you thought was terrible loved you you'd be like ah, oh, kind yep. of mixed feelings. <laughs> <laughs> i guess i got lucky you know so so what about the albums do you do you ever see you know them being re-released at any point or um like, are there any unreleased recordings or outtakes that might come out at, at any point? Well, yes, yes and yes, or maybe, maybe, and maybe. Um, there's been talk of reissuing them for a long time, and in fact, um, Frank was interested in doing it at one point, and it didn't happen, mostly probably because I didn't. I never liked the way our record sounded. Right. You know, as funny as that might sound they they somehow they lacked presence it wasn't the i don't know how to explain it exactly they they somehow lacked this forwardness to them that i heard in other records and i'm not just talking like commercial records or whatever so i want to remix them i right. guess is what i'm what i'm trying to say and i'm not talking about doing a frank zappa and replacing bass parts or fixing things or utilizing all the pro tools and correcting mistakes none of that i'm just talking about making them sound more as i had thought they should sound right so yeah and then there's a guy oh boy there is someone else who's interested who you've reminded me i owe him an email <laughs> so i think so i oh. hope so it'd be nice you know and is there unreleased stuff you could tack on to those oh yeah there's there's speaking of light life there are like Six songs, maybe, that are completely unheard. From the session? We were, yeah, from the session. Oh, wow. At, at Total Access, yeah. Because we had had our songs, you know, chosen at least, and here's what we're going to do. But then at one point, Carducci's like, okay, just play what anything you have. We're like, what? He's like, yeah, just play. Play your You set. have any songs yeah. you don't know? And I, you know, of course, it was like, ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> so we just burned through whatever it was, half dozen songs in the studio but recorded on a 24 track system you know so those exist and i mean there's weird things like you know there's an alternate version of light life the entire record but i don't think it's really worth much i mean it's not going to sound that much different maybe than a little bit sonically like I, demos I, or 
Yeah, remember I told you uh, Carducci wanted us to go in the studio and record all the songs. Right. And so we did it. And I, I want to say we went to Tom Mallon's place up here. Oh, this is uh, when you were trying to maybe uh, get signed to, to SST. Yes. Right. Well, we were, I mean, we hadn't signed anything, but we were signed, quote unquote. Right. And right. Joe wanted to hear the songs, and he said, go in and record them properly. Right. You know? So those exist, and then there's when we recorded later with Vetus, um, the last album, there's an entirely different version of that whole record, which again, I don't know. I don't think it would sound that much different. Um, like a different then, mix yeah. of it or a, or a completely different recording? Completely different recording. Oh, wow. We demoed the whole thing. And then there's, there's some outtakes here and there. Like we, some reason we redid another day. I think that was the one off of the first EP went with Vetus. It's like a long, a longer, wanky guitar version of it. Hmm. What about live stuff? Oh, there's tons of live stuff. Yeah. And we recorded things with Klaus Floride yep. uh, from the Dead Kennedys, who, who produced the first, that, that little track on the Maxim Rock and Roll compilation. Oh, okay. Um, he produced that, and... I think there's songs there, maybe like three or four songs there. And like then from we have that early session. from that session, yeah. yeah. And then there's earlier things when we were trying to get gigs, like very early things. Um, so what you're saying is we need a we need an angst box set. That's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> well, need might be a bit of a strong word. <laughs> no, I think we need it. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. We we need it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we could certainly make one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, now that I'm thinking about this, yeah, there's things around, and there were really good live. Unfortunately, some of our best live recordings, quality-wise, have disappeared into the ether. There's one hmm. that Tom Mallon, who I don't know if you know him, he was a local guy, He'd been around forever since the late. 70s he started recording bands in his room on a four track and he did grifter records and he was in the american music club and okay. um he recorded uh tons of the toiling midgets i mean it was just, I, I think he played in the toiling midgets as well anyways he was a local like institution you know everybody recorded a really good guy who's unfortunately subsequently passed away um he recorded the Eastern Front Festival, you ever seen those flyers, mm. you know, with the black flag, the pedophile yeah, flyer? If you look around and there was like two days, there was like a metal day and a punk rock day, I think is how they did it. And this would have been, I think, summer of 83, maybe? Anyways, the dicks are on the flyer, but they canceled. And we filled in for the dicks. So on that day, oddly enough, I think St. Vitus opened and then we played and then the Meat Puppets. And then I think Black Flag. Anyways, at one point, there were eight track recordings of the entire every oh, wow. set. But, I mean, God, maybe I'm letting something out into the air and everyone's going to go. But I think they're gone because I spoke to him about it not that long ago prior to him passing away. And, and they all seem to have disappeared, at least of the bands I asked about. And there were no, yeah. So you, You'd think know, some, some of that would have come out by now. Yes, or the bands reclaimed them, and yeah. exactly something, or somebody would have bootlegged them or whatnot. Yeah. But um, and and he's not the kind of guy that would have ever done that. But when I spoke to him, obviously I was primarily interested in Ankh stuff, but I asked him about other 
SST bands, and he didn't have them. So I have no idea what happened to those. We actually recorded a thing for Spin. Remember those Spin radio concert right. things? Right, yep. There's a Husker Du one that's pretty widely bootlegged. Right, Husker, and there's a Meat Puppets one, too. And I, I think those are the only SST bands. But Andrea Enthal, who wrote for the... Oh, God, I hope she doesn't get mad. Reader? She was a reader of the weekly, but she was a DJ. I want to say KXLU. Hopefully I'm not getting this wrong. In L.A. Okay. She liked us, and she really liked Light Life, actually, which there was that weird little period where Spin actually, like, uh, reviewed a lot of underground bands. Right. And uh, Byron Coley had a column in there for a while. Anyways, we got a review in Spin with like a full color reproduction of the cover of Light Life. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 And was it a good review? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't remember what it said, but I don't think she would have done it if she didn't like it. Yeah. We were supposed to do one of those Spin records, and we recorded it, but it never came out. Hmm. And I and I never, I don't even have a copy of the thing. When when all this stuff gets tracked down, and the box set comes out, uh, yeah. any any chance of a, some re- reunion shows to to promote it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, never. It's never been discussed as a possibility. Well, no. I mean, it got brought up once by by Charles by um uh, Frank Black. Right. He, he he inquired about it as well, but it has more to do with the interpersonal dynamic of my brother and myself. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, oh, God, yeah, I don't think so. I'm not sure he would even be capable, physically capable of doing it, you know. Okay. I mean, I would have to, I mean, I, like I said, I still play every day, but I would have to practice hard to play like I played then, you know. Yeah, for sure. But no, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'd never say never, never, but it, it's very, I wouldn't take that bet, you know. Right. But very unlikely. But the drummer, Andy, still my best friend. He's still here, you know. That part's possible, but we can't just plug in another guitarist. Right. You know? All right, Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Oh, likewise, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, like I said at the top of the show, very cool to have someone uh, like Joseph join the podcast and give us kind of a first-hand account of Onks because they're a very undocumented band. Like when I was uh, reading up for this episode and you know hitting the Google Web and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of the same two or three anecdotes everywhere you look about Onks, and that is it like it's there's really not that much out there about them and i was even looking through my books that kind of go through you know this scene or this era and uh, the great indie discography which has a lot of good stuff in it does not even include angst the flex book only has that first angst uh 12 inch it doesn't have light life which is a big miss Mm. if you ask me the trouser press record guide does have angst in it and, uh, and speaks to them quite favorably. But other than that, and the Wikipedia page, there's like nothing out there. So yeah. it's a big thrill to have Joseph on. For sure. Do you have anything to add to History Lesson Part 1, Ryan? Or do you want to 
talk about the music and the artwork. There were a couple of things maybe we should just recap for posterity, sure. maybe. We did have Angst on the show before on Blasting Concept 2, the song Just Me. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, so we had so everyone should check that out. And that song is not on Light Life. We did mention the Angst 12 inch that came out on Happy Squid, which is uh, a record label run by John Talley Jones. You know, Angst played that show with 100 Flowers, and they got uh, signed to put out the 12 inch, and that led to Joe Carducci signing them and and for this first release, Light Life. But even before the Angst 12 inch. And the Just Me song off a of blasting concept, of course. They did have a song on a couple of compilations. They were on the, I think Joseph mentioned this maybe, or, or just about some songs uh, that they had put out before Light Life. The Alternative Tentacles, Maximum Rock and Roll compilation, Not So Quiet on the Western Front. One of the more famous comps, I would say, from from the comp era. For sure. And yeah. it's got a song on it by Onks called Worker Bee, which is a good song. It actually reminds me of kind of pre-Milo Descendants, kind of like when the Descendants were really influenced by The Last. It's a good song. They also had a song on um, the like number seven of the Sub Pop Cassette Compilation Club. I don't know oh. if you remember that. That came out in 1982, and it's a song called Give All Power to the U.S. Okay. So there's pre-Light Life angst out there, and I know Joseph kind of alluded to it and, and probably mentioned some of that, but I want to make sure people know about that and go and check it out. You can um, you can get that Not So Quiet on the Western Front compilation pretty easily. It's been reissued. The, the angst 12-inch, it's not impossible to find, but it's not very common. You can still find it like on Discogs and whatnot. I really recommend you check it out, though. So we're going to be hearing that uh, release in, I don't know, a couple months, I think. Did it not get reissued by SST? Yeah, you're right. I may have misspoke on a previous episode, too, about that, but it, I believe it did as SST number 64. People should check that out. We'll find out when we get there, I guess. Yeah, it's got some great songs on it as well, like Neil Armstrong. Kind of a different sound. It sounds like early angst, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, they've been around for a while. I think he says in the interview they started in mid-81. So they were there, you know very early on yeah for sure and and i mean joseph mentions the um the relation to frank black and how a reference by frank black in rolling stone he, he kind of name checked angst and that kind of i guess garnered a bit of buzz about the band but there are a couple other things that i don't recall joseph mentioning like he did mention that he played with frank on that soundtrack the golem but frank black also covered uh, an angst song, Some Things I Can't Get Used To. Okay. And uh, that's a song off the Mending Wall LP, which is uh, SST 74. It's a really, really good version. But uh, did you know that Frank Black actually wrote a song called Angst? I think I read that, but I, I, I'm not sure I've heard it. Yeah, so it's, it's like a MP3 only type thing, no physical copy, but it's out there and you can listen to it on YouTube. You, and I, I printed out the lyrics. Okay. And so just so people know, like the, the names of the Angst albums, you know, this episode is Light Life and there's Cry for Happy, Mending Wall, Mystery Spot. So here are the lyrics of the Frank Black song, Angst. And again, the point is that Frank Black name checked 
uh, angst as being a big influence on him. And when you listen to the Pixies, you can you can hear it for sure. Um, so he's here are the lyrics. It says, I stole some of your tricks that night you came in 1986. But who could blame me? I copied all your licks. I was so spellbound. But I could not get a pound or an ounce of the feeling of angst. Feeling of angst. Now I should say in the song when he sings it, he doesn't say angst. He says angst. Okay. Then uh, I the song continues on. Been to the mending wall. I cry for happy. I found the mystery spot. I live the light life. I think I'm going to bomb, but you're not around. And I could not get a pound or an ounce of that feeling of angst. Feeling of angst. Awesome. Yeah, so Frank didn't just name check him. He wrote the song about angst. Well, that's that's awesome. Let's uh, move on to History Lesson Part 2, Ryan, and talk about the band's sound and the, and the songs. History Lesson Part 2. I want to talk about angst in general for a minute, Ryan. Can we do that? Definitely. I So I wrote a few things here. I did find a few rev reviews. So here's, you probably saw this. This is the Robert Christigal review. Oh yeah, and they got a B, they got a B rating, right? I di I don't I didn't I don't recall the rating. I didn't write it down, but he says these three guys are smart enough to know they have a problem. They can't sing. They're also smart enough to not let that stop them. Uh, I mean, I like we can talk about it in a bit, but I like the vocals, uh, and I, I guess he's not really dissing the vocals so much. No, no, he's not. He's just acknowledging that this is you're you're not going to hear like you know I don't know journey singing yeah. on this one yeah here here's another one i think this is the one joseph references in the episode by andrea enthal from spin january 86 spin yep. that's cool man uh spin has archived a lot of that stuff like this this it kind of shows you that spin wasn't maybe so lame i mean i used to buy it in the early 90s but like this app this yeah, this issue of Spin has the Galloping Coroners in it, Butthole Surfers, The Cramps, Naked Prey, Alex Chilton, reviews of, like, Thin White Rope, Live Skull. So, very cool. But she says in her review, deliberately flat, even sour post-punk vocal recitations. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. The first thing that comes to my mind when you say that maybe Spin didn't used to be so lame when I was a kid, you know, other than the odd zine that would show up, you would have to kind of look at, look for that one review or one ad in uh, spin or rolling stone or whatever spin. Definitely back in the day was a little bit more indie, a little bit more underground than rolling stone was rolling stone was definitely like a little bit more corporate, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But the, the thing that I was most immediately reminded of is this, magazine i used to subscribe to a ton of magazines and one of them that i used to subscribe to that i used to love especially like in the in the 90s was alternative press right and that magazine has turned into basically like tiger beat for emo kids yeah it's terrible oh it's horrendous yeah, yeah. uh well here's the thing so every th every kind of i guess description of angst i could find uh calls them I, I saw a lot of things calling them folk punks, <laughs> which kind of, uh, I, I don't, you know, th I think does them a disservice. And even worse, I found a few calling them cowpunk. And to me, when I hear the words cowpunk, I think of like 
really goofy, like over the top, exaggerated country punk. Like my, I mean, I like some stuff that I consider cow punk. For example, there's a Vandals album called Slippery When Ill. Do you know that album? No. It's been reissued on CD as like, uh, I think it's called the Vandals Play Really Bad Country or something like that. But I know it is Slippery When Ill. And uh, it's just, it's an awesome album. But I, I don't consider this cowpunk. To me, it reminds me more of some of the stuff that was coming out of L.A. around this time. Like, say, The Gun Club, Green on Red, Rank and File, uh, Tex and the horse, te- horse Heads I hear a lot in there. And even the Meat Puppets. But... It's certainly not folk punk or cow punk, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, I read a number of spots where they referenced them as like being hev- heavily influenced by or compared to uh, Meat Puppets and Minutemen. And I hear a bit of that, but I also think that that's a bit of a disservice as well. I read a ton that said that compared them to country, but I think that there's one description that I read that's called them, you know, mixing a cup of surf with country. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's probably just because of the undistorted guitars, probably more than anything, not that they actually sound like a surf band. Yeah. Uh, also describing them as Athens style, which I also don't think is very accurate. You're pretty much when, you, <laughs> if I hear Athens style, I'm just, I think REM, which is pr- probably the reference they had in mind. Probably. Yeah. yeah, which I don't I don't think is right. They they've got their own sound. They're very inventive. The whole album is 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 very inventive. Do you want to talk about the tracks? Yeah, absolutely. Love dissolves. Uh to me, yeah. that song just gets me pumped right off the bat. It's a great track. You know, I don't know who sings what, but there's definitely two singers on this album and uh I did ask uh Joseph, you know, I think I asked him in the interview if if it wasn't in the interview, it was afterwards. I kind of asked him, you know, was it a case of you write it, you sing it, and, and that's the case. So I don't know. Do you know who's who? Well, I'm pretty sure that when it says, you know, on the credits, words, right. words, risk versus words, Pope, when it's words, risk, it's risk singing. So who sings this one? Joe E. Risk, I believe. He reminds me of Gibby. Yes. Do you hear that? Yes. Do you hear Butthole Surfers in there? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, this could have been a Butthole Surfers track to me. Yeah. And uh, it's a great track, and it's also the A side of a promo single that they did. Yep, it's a killer first track. Yeah. Uh, the second track, "Turn Away," uh, it really reminds me of something the Gun Club would have done. And uh, here's the country influence. There's a real chicken picking type solo in there. Yeah, and and I mean, if you want to talk about the Pixies. I mean, you can draw a a pretty straight line from a song like this to some of the stuff the Pixies did. And there's a few songs like that on this record, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Track three, Just to Please You. So, uh, Jeff Schreck, number one angst fan. Just for curiosity's sake, I asked him what his ballot result was. This is the runner-up for his ballot result. Oh, so my notes on this song are some of the best lyrics we've had on the show so far. Yeah, they're really good. Uh, the thing I like about this song is how it goes from like it w- kind of weaves in in and out of like a really discordant type sound to like really melodic. It's really interesting. These guys were pretty like it's deceivingly simple sounding songs. Yeah, you know they're not so simple. These guys were it was pretty complex actually. Yeah, 
the fourth song, Glad I'm Not in Russia, it's kind of a little, I don't know if hokey is the right word, but it, this is like full-on country. It's got rim shots. It's got a two-step beat. It reminds me of something like Mojo Nixon would have done. Yep. And this is maybe the one that uh, he talks about Carducci egging him on to break the yodel barrier. This one, he kind of does like the yeah. bee hee, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. This, this to me, uh, like two things came to mind. Well, I'll maybe just mention one, but I mean, I thought it was kind of like joke vocals for sure, right? It's tongue in cheek. Yeah. Very tongue in cheek. He does mention in, in the interview uh, being greatly influenced by Jimmy Rogers and Hank Sr. So they, they you know, they liked, they liked country music for sure. Uh, the fifth track, The Poor Shall Refuse. I, I just wrote the main riff reminds me of Iggy's The Passenger. Not yep. a bad thing. Yep. And, uh, and I wrote, yet again, a clear line from this type of song right to the Pixies, for sure. Uh, A6, A-side track six, the title track, Light Life. This one I thought should have been last on the record because it, it reminds me of Tourspiel. It's so epic. S same kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting song structure. I think he mentions in the interview the gong is actually a cymbal slowed down. He talks about the, the kind of whistling sound, which is his bass. Flip it over. This gun's for you. This is one of my favorites on it. Okay, I, I got to test you on something. So finish your spiel and then I got mine for you. Okay, I love how the bass drives the song on this one. And uh, this is, I think it, one of the interviews I read, this is the one that talks about it being like Batman Surf or something like that. This is probably the song they, they were referencing, I think. I think so. Go, test me. So here's my test. And now, we're friends. I want you to do well on this test. Okay. Okay. okay? Um, but you, you have historically not done very well on my tests on the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not really setting me up here to feel too great about this question, Ryan. But. So, so here's here here's the thing. Is the answer the replacements? No. Okay. No, but but it's it's a band that is almost like you know up there with the replacements for me. There is a band from Canada that you and I love so deeply, and when I listen to this song. It reminded me of this band, and I wanted to see whether you had the same thought or whether you see it as well, but I'll, I'll just give you one hint. Okay. They're from the West Coast. Okay. Is it No Means No? Yes. Okay, well, I did write, I love how the bass drives the song. Yeah. So I didn't hear the No Means No, but I definitely heard the bass, which is a signature of No Means No sound. Yeah, right? but here's the thing. We were talking about who sings. Like who who is singing versus who wrote the songs? So for this guns for you, it's words Pope, and Joseph Pope singing on this song. I mean, yep. first of all, it's a killer song, but Joseph Pope singing on it. Not only does the music remind me of No Means No, but the singing reminds me of um, well, I guess their first guitarist singer Andy Kerr. Okay, I will I will re-listen to it with that in mind let me know you passed the test barely but okay. now but now as a follow-up you have to on a, a later episode agree with me do I, I have to agree with you on something <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right okay and i also had one other question for you yep. about this since we you know i had to force you to get into talking about no means no a bit no means no has been broken up for several years now and when i was listening to this song i was just thinking how awesome would it be 
to see No Means No again live. It would be really awesome. I would love to see them. Wouldn't Wouldn't you just lose it? Yeah, I, I would, would. I would lose it. Yeah, it would be the highlight of my year for sure. Okay. Anyways, second song, side two. It's all a lie. This one is Meat Puppets esque to me at times. Uh, I like how Joseph is strumming the chords during the chorus on his bass. Yeah, it's really awesome. Then the next song is Butler Grace. Cool song. I kind of like the chicka 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 part. That's maybe the Meat Puppets vibe, or sorry, uh, Minutemen vibe. Little bit. Yeah, I kind of thought that um, it's all a lie. And Butler Grace had a bit of, you know, when people are comparing these guys to Meat Puppets and Minutemen, these are kind of two of the songs that probably triggered that for them. Yeah, that's what I mean. Fourth track, never going to apologize. I I just wrote it's a cool song. I really like it. Track five, Friends. This was Jeff Shrek's ballot result, FYI. Uh, it's not mine, but it's a great song with killer vocals. Interesting. Friends. Yeah. You know, I mean, I listened to this record kind of on repeat for a few days this week when I could, and the last three songs on side two, Never Going to Apologize, Friends, and, and then the last track, they all kind of hung together as kind of one one song with kind of three movements to me. So interesting to pick it out. Yeah. Uh, the last track, Ignorance is Gliss. Probably uh, that, this one and Glad I'm Not in Russia, my least favorite. <laughs> it immediately reminded me of the closing credits of the movie Suburbia. I don't know why. I haven't seen that movie in 20 years, but I've seen it a gazillion times. So yeah, that's, that's what it reminded me of. That's a really random reference. I don't know. Maybe dial up those credits, you know, after that kid gets hit by that car and, and see what you think. I'm sure they're on you. I'm sure it's on YouTube. What was that kid's name? Ethan? Ethan. 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 Holy <laughs> man. I can't I remembered his name. <laughs> man, I've seen that movie a, a zillion times. An old friend from high school who I haven't seen in many years. I ran into him and we got to talking and he reminded me of one time he and I being drunk, laying on a floor, and I recited drunk, while drunk the entire movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> every piece of dialogue. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. Yeah, well, it was Slim Pickens back in the day when you're a punk rocker and you go to uh, the VHS store, right? Yeah, for sure. I, wa I wanted to ask you something, though, Ryan. I was, you know, I was talking to Joseph off air and he was kind of like, sorry, I don't remember much about uh, Michael Lardy or whatever. And I, and I was thinking to my, I think I said this to him, but like you and I recorded in a recording studio together around, I want to say 97. And I don't remember anything about the recording engineer. I don't, I, cu I couldn't even pick him out of a lineup and I cert certainly don't know his name. And it's, you know, I just, I think about that from time to time when I'm, and that's what, what, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. I, so when I'm asking somebody something about, you know, 33 years ago, I, I laugh to myself sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty impressive that he can remember and all the people that we interviewed that they can remember what they can, because I agree, man. Like, and you know, when I, when you and I were recording, in 97 or whatever i mean the, the band that you and i were in was like my fourth or fifth band and i had put out a ton of stuff even before that and i can't even remember my bandmates names much alone much less you know any of the studios or stuff so it's but i mean i guess 
one aspect that maybe plays in favor of the people we're talking about and their memory. I mean, they were on SST for crying out loud and, yeah. and none of my bands went anywhere. So why would I remember it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I just, you know, I try and put myself in their shoes when, when somebody's asking them about stuff that happened so many years ago, Ryan, uh, I think we kind of covered the, or Joseph kind of covered the artwork off in the interview. Uh, do you have anything to add? Well, we should probably take a look uh, and see if there are any runout grooves on the vinyl, hey? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Is there? So I'm looking at side side one. It looks just like the catalog, SST54A, and that's it on side A, or side one. On side B, oh, on side B it says dot, dot, dot is the right time. Hmm. Cryptic. That's interesting. It's like yeah. the, fir the first half of the runout groove is somewhere else. Yeah. All right. Ballot result? Ballot result. Ballot result. Which? What's your pick, Ryan? Oh, I would... Uh, you know what? There's, it's a tough one, isn't there's, it? There's three or four that are really, really high up on my list. Like, it would be hard to pick. I would go with Love Dissolves or This Guns for you. Maybe even Light Life, too. It's so epic. What, what about yeah. you? Uh, I had uh, Love Dissolves, Turn Away, and This Gun's For You as my picks. Mm. So we both had Love Dissolves and This Gun's For You. Your pick, Ryan. I'm going to go with Love Dissolves, I think. it's, uh, it's... That's what I was going to say. It comes out of the gate so strong. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. They come out swinging on this one, man. Yeah, when it when it starts off, you just get pumped. I, I love it. Ryan, speaking of getting pumped, I'm almost scared to ask you what's next week because I know you're probably shitting your getch. <laughs> oh man it's husker do flip your wig and i can't wait for right after this podcast because i'm gonna crank flip your wig for the next week nice hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.